Golay presents Recorded History with the RecordHub.com. 100% Irish and direct to your door. Hello everyone and welcome to Recorded History with the RecordHub.com. I'm your host Ed Smith and this is the podcast where you get to hear about the lives and histories of your favourite musical heroes and theirs. Over the course of this series, I'll be speaking to some incredible musicians, writers, artists, comedians, journalists, presenters and creatives about the three records that have come to define their lives. Now, this isn't another one of those podcasts, yes, highlighting the coolest edgiest, most rarefied record people have in their collection. No, 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 absolutely not. No, this is a podcast for everyone where we celebrate the personal relationships people have with the music that they listen to. So expect some unexpected choices, forgotten favorites from across the musical spectrum, from rock to house to pop to dance and whatever you're having yourself. So to this week's guest on Recorded History, guest number four, yeah, We're on the fourth guest already. Let me just take this quick opportunity uh, to thank you all so much for the lovely, kind and gorgeous words I received regarding my chat with Hosier. If you missed it, it is there on Recorded History, which you'll find on the Go Loud app or wherever you get your podcasts. Great old chat with Hosier. But listen, it's not about Hosier this week. He has had his moment in the podcast sun with me. No, to this week's guest, and I did struggle. I was like, how are we even going to start to describe this man? And I thought to myself, If I was to do an episode of Recorded History, and instead of talking about the albums that have come to define my life, but I was to talk about the three Twitter accounts that I would go to war for. One of them is absolutely Dolly Parton. But one of the other ones (laughs) of the three is that of Mr. Seamus O'Reilly. Mr. Seamus O'Reilly burst into our brains and into our consciousness some years ago with what will go down as the, to my mind at least, greatest Twitter thread of all time. It is the stuff of legend. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it is, of course, for those that do, it tells the tale of his encounter with Mary McAleese, who was president at the time. Uh, If you haven't read it, stop what you're doing right now, pause the podcast, go seek it out, do a search on Twitter or on Google. Seamus O'Reilly, Mary McAleese thread, or whatever way you're going to go about it. Read it, sit back, and enjoy. Bask in some if not the greatest comedy writing I have ever seen on that or any other platform. So that changed his life. And we get into it here with Seamus about how that Twitter thread, how it came about, what he was thinking when he wrote it, what he wasn't thinking, where he was in his life at that time, and the absolutely meteoric impact it had on his life and still does to this day. We talk about his outstanding book, uh, Did You Hear Mammy Died? came out in 2020. And to this day, I think Did You Hear Mammy Died is the greatest book, the most powerful, moving and hilarious book about grief I have ever, ever read. Of course, we get into it about that as well. We discuss that Tommy Bow incident. If you don't know what that is, I would also ask you to check that out. Even more homework to do. Just Google Seamus O'Reilly, Tommy Bow and see what happens on YouTube. And we talk about that as well. We talk about his career since that Twitter thread, where it's gone, what he's doing, his remarkable relationship with his father, which he gets gets into in the book. And we talk about it here. Amanda must get on this podcast. It is so touching and so moving, the bond he has with his father. And of course, we talk about the role music has played at various parts in his life. His taste in music, as I would have hoped and expected from a man I hold in such high esteem, is absolutely exquisite. He knows his stuff. 
So we talk about that as well. So sit back and enjoy and bask yourself in the charm, the intelligence and the humour of the absolutely brilliant Seamus O'Reilly. That brings me beautifully on to a moment that occurred to you on morning television here in Ireland. And Tommy Bow was doing the intro. And how would you describe what happened? Yes, I was on Ireland AM talking about my uh, very good and excellent book. It is very good. Um, and it is excellent. Thank you so much. And uh, I had the rare moment where the promotional tour for the book became its own viral meme for reasons completely disconnected from the book. <laughs> so... Uh, for anyone who has not seen the clip, Tommy is quite exuberantly introducing uh, my book um, in much the same way that you just did. So a story of uh, a guy growing up in Derry with 10 siblings, at which he evinces extreme delight at this notion, only for, I believe Claire McKenna is the co-host, uh, to say, when his mum died. <laughs> um, rather oh. rather deflating, this sort of, the quite... Uh, quite boisterous enjoyment that the he was taking The great thing about the, the clip, that, I've just yeah. watched it before you came in, and it's quite a partridge-esque moment, obviously, yes. but it's his face. It's, it's the speed his face drops when she says, his mother died, and then he goes, oh. I believe his exact quote is, oh. <laughs> uh, Tommy's a very, a, a very kind, nice boy. I yeah. like him a lot. I made it very clear immediately upon uh, watching it that I thought it was very, very funny, um, at least on Twitter. It was happening, I was there, coming live over Zoom at the time. We'd also been talking about the book and all of its contents for about two minutes beforehand. In this, oh, were of you? I wasn't aware. And the title of the book okay. is "Did You Hear Mammy Died?" So, I'd say the frontiers of my surprise were fairly well mapped. That he hadn't actually worked out that that was coming down the the pipe. But at the same time, I think Claire could have let like, given him a softer landing. Do you she, think so? She kind of pulled the rug. Did out she of hang him out to dry a little, a little bit? Oh. But that makes for you know, it's ruthless morning television. Well, it's show business, not you know, show friends. And all you, all I can see is your little dollar signs in your eyes. Going, That's right. Let's yeah. go viral. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and the big thing about it was, I just wanted, I really wanted with this book that I wrote about my mother's death that it would be a hilarious viral moment. Well, of That's course, you're not a stranger. Uh, your virility uh, knows no <laughs> bounds because you're an editor of a magazine. You're a very well regarded columnist for the Observer, but. I think for most people, it's fair to say, if you don't mind me saying, is you're the guy who shared a room with our then president, Mary McAleese, whilst on Ketamine. I am indeed, yes. So bring us back to 2018. It wasn't even your own tweet as such. It was a reply to a Be tweet beta, ask, believe, yeah, yeah. asking somebody, what was the biggest F up you yeah, had in work? And it was one of those big call outs that media websites do, and which I've been known to do myself. Just sticking your nose out into the digital void just looking for some interaction and they said what was the worst day you ever had in, in work and I was in my then job very very boring job and I told the story of the worst moment I ever had at work on probably about 2005 I'm still thinking about it now <laughs> I was young yeah. as, as I've just said and I was really really work shy I think is quite fair to say and I was working doing shifts in a music venue in Dublin of which I will not name and I thought I had the day off and having been quite green in my younger days, I wasn't sort of a big party kid in my teens. I was quite a bookish, nerdy kid, which might surprise anyone who's ever met me. Well, we'll get to that in your records. It's reflected in your choices today. Yes, I was a big time music nerd who listened to records but didn't go to gigs very much yeah. because I was just very sheltered. We lived way out in the sticks and it was just not a thing. So I caught up a bit in college because it was the first time I was experiencing a lot of the things that maybe were slightly on the more sordid side of, of, of youth, youth culture. 
So I was catching up and well and good. And on that night, it just so happened that I was introduced to a horse tranquilizer, more often cat tranquilizer. Is it? I just thought it was horse. Oh, okay. No, it's more often cat tranquilizer because uh, basically ketamine is used on all animals, including humans. But people say horse tranquilizer to make it seem even more, either more sordid or more badass, depending on what their interest is. But uh, vets have, you mostly get it from vets. And vets have more use. This was budgie tranquilizer. Doesn't have the same. Yeah, exactly. So uh, my friend was making it, and he gave me some. I said, "That's great, fantastic," and I had some. And then I got a call from my boss saying I wasn't actually off. I did have to go in. And when I got there, I discovered that I was not doing a normal shift. I was going to be in there for two hours doing silver service. That is to say, standing in the corner with a tray of drinks, while Mary McAleese, the then president of Ireland, was shown around the exhibits. So this thread that I told kind of goes through my entire thought process and everything that I was experiencing. And it also describes the physical effects of the drug and my psyche. Has she read it, do you know? She has indeed, yes. She has? She has, yes. I believe it was, she was sent it roughly 5,000 times in the first three days. So it went completely bonkers, viral then. I think, I think it's been viewed something like 80 million times or something, all the, all the tweets all together. There was a write-up about it in the New York Times about my prose style. Did it change your life? It absolutely changed yeah. my life, yeah, 100%. So it's completely got me on the radar of several people who luckily got me to write about other things. So I've never written about drugs professionally again. <laughs> drugs in front of presidents. Exactly. It's I mean, they didn't, market, yeah. they didn't like make me write like a, a some sort of travelogue where I go to, you know, take poppers with Gaddafi. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, whatever the next Various thing state residents. I, yeah. did, I did actually mm. get a few offers from a few magazines that you might guess the names of who wanted me to do stuff like that and uh, luckily though the Farmer's the, Journal I think it was yeah. Yeah. well the yeah. horse tranquilizer I suppose they can get a sponsor well Budgie but. Monthly had a very good <laughs> offer but I just didn't want to relocate the best success I had was from people who somehow looked through the cracks in the page and said oh this guy writes well maybe he could write about believe it or not parenting so from the back of that thread doing well I managed to I managed to effectively quit my job about within about three months and I've been writing professionally ever since I mean, really scrimping, getting along as anybody who writes professionally can probably recognise. But you'd no sense when you were typing out that tweet. No. The thing about writing it was, I was doing this at work. At work, <laughs> at a job I hated, I was confessing to having taken drugs at work. And that somehow ended up with me being able to quit my job and get job work that quit I did Quit your like. job? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Your boss didn't read the tweet and go, I could have a quick word, Seamus. Do you know what the honest. amazing thing is? They did all read it, but they thought it was hilarious. Oh, great. They, I think they were all so square they thought I'd made it all up. Or that it was so long ago that it didn't yeah. really matter. But the good thing about something as stupid as that is I can trace so many very good, wonderful things in my life back to an incredibly stupid story, which I think is very well written and great and all that, but which is completely, it's nonsense that it would have caught on so much. I see really funny things all the time that don't catch on fire. And the good thing about that is you can never really hold yourself into high esteem. Because, you know, it frees you of a lot of petty vanities. Oh, if you right. can trace everything so back to something so silly, it really levels you out. And what was your family's, as may I point him out, I suppose, your father's reaction to the thread? Was he aware of the story before it went gangbusters? Or No, he was not. And also, I don't think he really, I don't think he read it originally. I mean, I think he, he read it almost like a piece of discursive writing, I think. I think so many of the words and, and concepts in it were so alien from his own experience that I don't think he would have thought that it was even as sordid as I did. <laughs> so because he was like, oh, well, maybe that's just something they do down there, down and in that Dublin. Did he or the family have any concept of how viral it went or how? Well, yes, every single one of them was sent it by numerous okay. people. So, I mean, the, the thing about it was, 
it is really it's an odd thing to talk about because you, you have to kind of banish any sense of sort of self-importance because it's just a tweet going viral it's completely silly so we'll put that on the table and keep it there but it is really 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 strange to be in the center of a viral storm to be the main car to the internet for a day and it's something i find really fascinating it's happened to me a few times growing up with 10 siblings was there even room in the level of noise the cacophony of sound for music to filter through in that house when you were growing up in Derry in the Yes, 90s. music was a big part of our childhood. My dad has subsequently confessed that he would have loved for us all to be some sort of big band. Oh, like the Kelly family? A bit like the Kelly family yeah. or like Clannad or one of those. And he was particularly uh, besotted with Irish traditional music, but kind of more on northern, what I would call Northern Irish country music, NICM, which is after the troubles, probably the thing for which my homeland should be most ashamed. Mm. So daddy, as I refer to him, he loves all that. He loves... The Daniel O'Donnell, Dominic Philomena Begley. Oh, oh yeah, the Queen, the Queen. I mean, having said that, stuff we also would have. He loved old, just sort of, sort of classic American songwriting. Loved sort of you know the Carpenters, Simon and Garfunkel, stuff like that. Standard issue for any father. And then, of course, the thing about having eight older siblings is, it, you get filtered down everything that they like. So, an awful lot of the music that I would have heard growing up would have been stuff that I'd either heard them playing or heard their friends playing. So there have been some incredibly diverse records lying around the house that you would have just picked up and thrown on. Absolutely. Without any, I suppose, preconceived notions or None ideas of, of whether it was good or not. No, I mean, I remember my brother just, Dara, who was a big musical influence on me. He was, you know, always very cool. He was in Glasgow and he would come back and he'd, you know, he'd have this CD and that CD and there'd be an awful lot of sort of Scottish indie bands, each more fave than the last. And then... Aphex Twins Classics oh. was one that he dropped on me. So this didn't fit his usual remit. Not Scottish, not indie, but he seemed to like it. So I put it on and completely reformatted my hard drives. So that that was... is your first choice as we go through your recorded history. 1999, Aphex Twin and Window Liquor. Yes, in 1999, I would have been 13. So I heard that probably in my Auntie Kathleen's house because they had MTV. And I remember knowing who FX Twin was just as a name. And I remember thinking, that sounds very good and cool. And I really kind of want to understand it. But it was one of millions of other things that I heard. Seeing the visual, though, of Window Liquor and Come to Daddy as well, which I'd seen, that completely just took well, it's, to the next it was Well, it was FX Twin's obviously relationship with Chris Cunningham that with, with this particular video, the video itself is 11 or so minutes long, that the, the song is six and for those of you who haven't seen it, I would, I, I'm almost loath or wary to recommend <laughs> watching the video for Window Liquor, but it tells a story. The imagery is obviously so striking, but for me, it was all about what he was doing with the music and how confrontationally just acidic it was. It, the way that it was breaking down so many different types of music, you know, it was sort of glitchy sort of techno influence, but it was a huge sort of hip hop and sort of R&B kind of thing where it was like putting two or three very MTV brands of music into a blender and daring MTV to play it. Was MTV or music television a big part of your childhood growing up? Was it a, a, a big presence in the house? No, because we didn't have it. So I, I only got to watch it. As well, no sense then it was because when we went to like a friend's house or as I said, the aforementioned Auntie Kathleen, we would just watch it like it was, you know, you know, like you see that old footage of like, you know, 
people watching the train coming towards them in the station and going, ah. Yeah. That's what we were like for MTV. We were like, it's a whole channel. It's just what? And, you know, this is something that would probably been, you know, commonplace for most people for 15 years. Well, we were the same growing up. I only had two channels and I go into my cousin's house and seeing Soundgarden's Black Hole Sun yeah, video oh, with the, the kind of distorted face. Well, I mean, it's quite, uh, there's a lineage there, isn't Yeah, there, of course. And I think I, I might have watched it like eight times in a row. I could not fathom, you know, I was coming from Bosco Town and, you know, <laughs> TV started wait, no, at three o'clock, you know, maybe I'm over-exaggerating slightly, but. Music videos then, you, you could literally sit down for 12 hours and yeah. they would come up again, obviously, they were heavily rotated and you'd watch them and watch them and they were, they become just as part, as much a part of your music, I suppose, history as, as the songs themselves. Yeah, and also they gave a wedge point for artists and acts that probably could never have gotten as big a foothold if they were just existing on audio alone. So people like me, for example, who do not find FX Twins music particularly discordant. We love it. We think it sounds beautiful and incredible. And I think Windelicker is just such an exciting, even still now, whatever, 20 odd years later, I still find it so exciting to listen to. And I think it still sounds so fresh. That wouldn't have got it, I don't think, to where it was if it hadn't been for the fact that they had like this manic little short film, which anybody who watched it wanted to show the next person, almost like it was a sort of a pre-viral viral yeah. clip. And so it means that loads of people have heard that and loads of people got an idea of who this person was. And I think the same is true for loads of those little promo clips that existed then, which he kind of, I don't know, does it happen anymore as much? It's kind of short form stuff as a little bit more. I mean, I can't remember the last time I saw, or even heard someone say, oh my God, have you seen the music video for I think X. they try. I think there's a kind of almost contrived nature to the, trying try to go viral by being edgelords uh, visually and it doesn't the, the lack of sincerity or the lack of real artistry comes through in that and people can see through it plus the amount of visual content that is out there at the moment with TikTok the honey compete yeah. it's well, even, you might get a second well even the, that Daniels who directed Everything Everywhere All at Once which is an amazing movie they cut their teeth on music videos and I just don't know if that could happen now where they made calling card videos from like the mid 2000s till about the mid teens when that was a thing, when you're like, oh God, have you seen the music video for this? It's unbelievable. Oh, and the song's all right, okay. But I know I know who, I don't know, OK Go are, or yeah. whatever. One of those bands that was like, oh, their videos are always really good. I don't think that exists anymore. And I'm trying to picture your father, you know, going past your room and hearing window liquor coming through the bedroom door. What was his reaction? Or was it like any father's trying, just, you know, hearing his children's music and just rolling his eyes and moving on? No, I'd say his attitude to it was sort of apocalyptic he basically whenever I would be listening to AFX Twin he'd often pull the, the, the stereo out of the mains this happened more than once I'd be doing my homework or something on a Sunday he'd be watching the Formula 1 in the other room so he's not in the room I'm in the kitchen and I'm playing it I'm not playing it particularly loud but it's definitely abrasive music sometimes and he pulls the plug out of the wall as if it's going to infect the mains you know anyway this didn't happen with trucks well he came in he was listening around and I think it was a track called Beshku EB3 PNM well said thank you and he's just making himself a cup of tea or whatever, just fisting around. And I'm like, Jesus, he's withstanding this pretty, pretty well. He's ordinarily, he'd be given out. And he just turns and says, how long does this take? And I said, I don't, I don't follow this, this thing. How long does it take? Oh, no. And I was like, what do you mean? And my dad thought that it was one of those things you do to test the sonic range oh. of a speaker. <laughs> Because we just got new speakers in the thing. And he thought that I'd gone, gone on and decided I was going to test the sound. So he thought it was like oh just bonus high frequency sounds 
that I just got yeah, made. Your fax is here. And I was like, I can't believe that it finally, it, it actually went under his radar because he didn't even count it as music. And this is a man who had a lot of VHS videos himself. So I suppose his engagement with uh, Chris Cunningham's videos might be like, just yeah. as... No, he wouldn't have gone for that. And we did actually, I did record music videos off the TV and sometimes over his tapes. Those kinds of like little moments of when you're a kid and you're like maybe 13, 14 and you're piecing together your identity so much from the things that you're seeing, which are your own things, which you haven't been shown by the older brother, which you haven't seen from, you know, handed down as if it's yeah, printed yeah. on official paper, you know, the Beatles, the Stones, whatever, or in my case, Phil me fairly. You know, you're finding those little things at 2am on Channel 4 and you're like, whoa, what is this? Or some, it could be movies, it could be music, it could be whatever. And for me, that happened strangely through one of my dad's biggest legacies, which was that he had a 800 strong wow. VHS collection of videos he taped off the TV. I would say a good, good solid half of the reason why he did it was just plain old fashioned miserliness. We were way out in the sticks. We didn't have a blockbuster or a Hollywood video or anything nearby. So there was that, you know, keeping us occupied. But also, I think my dad has the same thing I've realized now as I get older. As me, he's, he's an archivist in his brain. He likes the idea of collecting and having all his things in the right place. I think he liked the idea of having the self-sufficiency of at any moment I can reach for Wurzel Gummidge down under. And did he categorize it himself alphabetically or he was absolutely it, there did. was a system? He did a whole brochure. He did it alphabetic. He did it chronological. Put them side by side, printed them out in a binder. I mean, clearly this is a guy who was also having some sort of incredibly benign midlife crisis. But <laughs> so he goes, you could go through and you could find, you know, as I said, Wurzel Gummidge down under, which is there twice, which I always like to reference. But you could also find, you know, movies that were huge, huge, massive blockbusters that were on a Christmas day. Or you could find, you know, literally absolute dog muck rubbish. So he was like LimeWire before. Yes, yeah. it was everything. My favorite was though, he always tried to save space, you know, so those tapes that could hold two things on them was a real prize thing. So a three hour tape, you can get, you know, two brisk hour and a half movies. So that was a favorite pastime of his, which meant that you had some really insane double bills, like Highlander and Pride and Prejudice were on the same tape, Robocop and an RT performance of A Woman's Heart was back to back. Wow. Okay. And my favorite, which is so off-putting that it might as well be used by the CIA as a torture, is the single holy tape that contains Police Academy 4, then Police Academy 2. Oh God. So two not very good films, back to back, out of order, without the film in between. So I just live in the sweat as for <laughs> And we my watched complete and obviously you'll know this from your own childhood, you just watched anything that was in front of you. Oh. So I watched yeah. Robocop followed by A Woman's Heart because it's in front of me. You have no choice. It? We watched Grease 2 thinking it was obviously as good as Grease. Well, why wouldn't it? They made another one. Thank, thank you. Thank you for making us this thing. Next. What's next? It's kind of so, obliterated at a very young age any kind of sense of snobbery or yeah, judgmental. It meant we could build our own snobberies and yeah. boy, did we. Yes, well, as, as we've said before, there's absolutely no room for snobbery on recorded history, Seamus. And that brings us rather smoothly and seamlessly on to your second monument of your recorded history. We're going back to 97 now, and another iconic, very idiosyncratic, I suppose, revolutionary artist yet again, uh, in the form of Bjork. Yes, Homogenic mm. by Bjork is still a real tempo for me. I mean, I listened to it again today, just in preparation, and I was again, I was like, this is just so bloody good. It's just so good. Of course, it's her third album after debut and then mm. post. And yeah. it came at a time in her life, didn't it, where 
I suppose that the massive success of those first two albums, she was living in London, she'd had some high-profile relationships, I think, with Tricky and Goldie. And then there was a really unpleasant situation with a stalker who tried to kill her or was threatening to kill her. And I think committed suicide in in her home and stuff. So I think, yeah, this this was the album that was written just after that. And also, I mean, those were all quite big, serious, you know, things. But there was also, she was becoming a bit of a, a figure of fun almost for people where she was seen as being this sort of silly uh, arty for art's sake kind of character. This manic pixie girl yeah, before. Uh, a little bit about like what they did with Yoko Ono yeah, I suppose yeah. where they kind of she kind of became a whipping boy for the sorts of people who didn't want to think too much about you know art and presentation and everything else. No I don't have to stick up for Bjork Bjork is Bjork so she doesn't need me to do that. But it did rankle with me that so much of her public persona was kind of seen as being this kind of very silly, manic, pixie dream girl when she's just this phenomenal composer, this incredible writer, continuous innovator, and also makes some of just the most beautiful, breathtaking and banging music that that there is. Well, in this record in particular, you know, it, it is more stripped back than I suppose that... In places, yeah. In, in places. And I think, you know, it's a return maybe to her. She's got very... Obviously, she's very tied to her homeland, but she's obviously very... It seems to me like an attempt to kind of re, reattach herself to her to her roots, even the iconic album cover. Yeah. And she's like this kind of ancient warrior mother figure. Yeah, that sort of figure. It's Alexander McQueen. Oh, is it? Yeah. yeah. So, it's an astonishing cover. And it's, it's unbelievable. And the whole thing about her, her visual and her aesthetic... The sort of style and substance, you know, if you can get both in, please do. And I think style over substance has to be one of my most annoying sort of little pet peeves when I hear people say that. Because it's just something, well, just because you don't like style or you don't like someone, how dare someone, particularly a woman or particularly a youth culture oriented act, how dare they make make themselves look outrageous? Is it something, do you think there's a kind of people, the purists see it as a kind of a demeanor? Diminution or a watering well, down, do. I mean, I or think, do they reluct, like they see your your use as a crutch, or maybe they just I don't know. Perhaps they think that if you're, you know, if you're, if, if your visuals are are overwhelming and incredible, that somehow it attracts the music. No, it only adds. Mm. And there are, of course, examples where, you know, everyone has examples of things where, like, okay, that person, they may look amazing, but I don't like the the, the type of music they make. But that's true in those cases. But in other cases, you take them as two separate things. And with Bjork, always enhanced. I mean. We mentioned Chris Cunningham. This album has an amazing single, a video for the single, All Is Full Of Love, also by Chris Cunningham, which is just one of the most beautiful short films you'll ever see in your entire life. That's something where the, you know, the visual, which is, you know, overseen by Chris Cunningham and Bjork, who is always a huge creative force in all those kinds of endeavours, very much at the forefront of what she's doing. You know, she's not going, showing up on set and being told where to print. She's behind, you know, the music, behind the visuals, behind all that. And she also brings in incredible collaborators, people like Chris Cunningham, people like on this record, you know, Howie B, Mark Bell. And what happens so often, I think, with female producers as well, is that once she does that, and once she gives them an awful lot of credit, she even lists them in the track names, people start talking about it as if it's their record that they made. And Bjork well, is just there as a sort of, you know, yeah, a prop. A facilitator. Or when, this is a classically trained composer. This is someone who's made, you know, before breakfast, she is writing anyone out of the park. And I think you see that a little bit, the way people talk about people like David Bowie, for example. You know, David Bowie was surrounded by collaborators all times. And he was, you know, very visually 
kind of manipulative, but he clearly had designers. He clearly had fashion stylists and everything mm. else, people. And no one says, oh, David Bowie, if he only just wore a pair of jeans, wouldn't that be just, you know, why, why is it always about the big flares and the paint in the face? No, it's like visionary, iconic. Oh my God. Yeah. And I think sometimes you can see the way people like Bjork are treated by some people. I don't want to overstate it. That it's it's like the inverse. It's like she gets criticized for all the things that David Bowie gets praised for. And I think personally, I think she is every bit as huge and iconic an artist as David Bowie is. And I think in a few decades when we have a bit more space from this period, particularly the last 20, 30 years, she's going to be regarded as absolutely on a par with you. Yeah, I'm very grateful we've you've chosen Bjork because full disclosure, 97, 96, 95, when the first three albums came out, I was, I would say, baggy jeans deep in your Stone Roses and your <laughs> Oasis, your Blur, and then your Pearl Jam and whatnot. I was that guy, you know, and was I liked one or two of the songs in and around that time, I would have very much fallen into that kind of eye-rolling, you know, who's the Quirky. who's the fairy from, you know, the manic imp woman from Iceland that I just, I would kind of, you know, I would have fallen into that trap quite severely at that age in my life. And I suppose you've given me the chance today. I listened to Homogenic earlier today. It is an incredible, and it's a timeless, ageless record. As all great art is, it could be made yesterday, it could be made in 10 or 15 years. And as you say, the prejudice that surrounded which I was a party to <laughs> for some years, you know, the cartoonish figure that Bjork yeah. was, was, was demeaned to, that she was, is and was a very serious and important artist. Yeah, and that. I think there's so many quivers to her bow, or the fact that she had this, she's like a five octave voice range. You know, it's, 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 it's unfair that she's so good at so many things. And that she can consistently reinvent herself and that she can have so many different interesting things to say, both musically and, you know, with, I personally, I just love her lyrics. Speaking of great writing, there's <laughs> something happening in the North of Ireland at the moment, I suppose, between yourself, you know, Anne Burns, Jan Carson, Lisa McGee with Dairy Girls. How and why do you think that has come about uh, in the last couple of years? They're talking about contemporary, or at least kitchen sink, Northern Ireland. Stuff which does obviously gesture towards the same things that people talk about in Northern Ireland. Sure, it's there and it does come up. But they're also just talking about feelings and places and ideas and thoughts. Similarly, Lisa McGee with Dairy Girls think the best thing that it does is it shows very ordinary trials and tribulations of people in a place where oftentimes people from those places like myself would be called in to talk about our hometowns in very specific circumstances. I mean, in my case, I got to write about the border whenever Brexit was a big thing. I get to write about peace dividends and ceasefire babies and all those kinds of oh, things. Oh, was that wearying? That well, it was a little bit. in the context of the North. Well, especially troubles. when I was writing for some places where it was like, you should have someone else to write about this because I'm not an expert, A. But B, I think a lot of times the stuff that was written about it was so dry because obviously people were so scared of offending. And I mean, I always say that the best thing about being from Northern Ireland, possibly the only good thing, is that you're not scared of Northern Irish people. <laughs> so I kind of thought if I'm able to talk about this stuff, because I am, because I don't care about offending, you know, me, yeah. then I might as well. And I think that some publishers and some audiences have, you know, really kind of picked up that this there's so much interesting stuff and maybe that's allowed other people to come through. And I certainly think that, you know, something like Dairy Girl 
showed you know ordinary human stories it's about you know boise fancy it's about wanting to go out it's about you know whatever even though it's during this time in Derry's history where you know other stuff is happening which does come up and i think which adds to the show but it's the fact that it's a normal place it's the normal place that we all knew growing up i suppose the inbuilt preconception is that you woke up in the morning there was a british soldier poking you awake with a bayonet for some reason I suppose there is that kind of, uh, because of the art and culture that we would have experienced, most of it was quite dour, focusing on the troubles and the IRA. And It was a vicious cycle as well, because those are the kinds of things which people would find sexy or exciting or useful about talking about Northern Ireland in literature, in books and in movies. And so what happened was then there was this myth that somehow that's all the Northern Irish people wanted to talk about. It's like, no, it's the only time you let us speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like, it's this catch-22 where okay, well, I can talk to you about uh, like the football team that I play for and we can write a drama about that. Well, in Northern Ireland, could you maybe make it a bit more about... How could we shoehorn? Is exactly. one of them in the IRA? Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, they might have been. <laughs> that's the thing. And so it, either you kind of use the stuff that's from your background and people get... And there's another thing is there was a lot of fatigue about it because I think people didn't like... You know, people like to hear about Northern Ireland in the sad song bits and reading in the years. That's all they wanted. And then they didn't necessarily want to hear about stuff that either bucked that idea... Or shall I say, the perception was that they didn't want. I think what we're currently seeing is that people do want to hear stories from everywhere. And mm. Irish people have a high tolerance for reading about anything. I mean, how many of us watch Scandinavian crime dramas? So if you can do that, then you can, you can wade through, you know, a Derry accent or maybe sort of strange or unknown versions of a history that you kind of only get half of. Right, Seamus, rather sadly, we are now swiftly at record three as part of your potted recorded history, and the year is the year 2000. <laughs> Where are you taking? You're going to Australia with this one. Yeah, I've just realised these are all like, they're really rat a tat tat, just that 97 to 2000. <laughs> Why is that? I suppose, well, I have seen there is scientific evidence that basically the stuff that really affects you is when you're about 14. Mm. And so for me, I suppose that's why 97, 98, 99, 2000 kind of. I look at so many records from that time, I'm like, oh, these are, this was when I first, you know, had my mind blown here and there. Also, like I said, you've got clean ears, you know, you've got clean eyes. You're so easily transportable because, you know, first impressions make a, such a difference where something just goes just in, like a bullet in your brain if you don't have so many other examples of that thing before. And the Avalanches is a great example where I was really into sort of hip hop and soul and a lot of these sort of cut up DJs and that kind of thing and this was probably the first record I mean even Daft Punk didn't really affect me as much and I loved Homework and Discovery this was the first time when the synthesis of all, all these parts the sort of game of it the sort of big colourful box of toys that it was I mean if I think of something like Homogenic as this gorgeous artwork you know you can almost see it etched in you know stone and filled with moss and beautiful sort of gems this was like a big dressing up box of sheer joy. You yeah. know, it's, it's like a an explosion of ideas and all taken from, you know, I think well over a thousand, two thousand different records. Yeah, it, it varies. So, of course, we're talking about Since I Left You, the Avalanche's remarkable debut album. Reports vary from 900 to three and a half thousand. Yeah. Obviously, I'd say one of them knows. <laughs> it's just going by the sense of how, I suppose, meticulous they are. The story of this is that it's quite interesting to me is how it was recorded, of course. It was Robbie Chater and Darren Seltman, who under the pseudonym of Bobby Dazzler, they had two identical studios set up 
in Australia and one would get a bag of tricks, a bag of samples, and the other would get another. And they would sample and collate and spice all these samples together separately. And at the end of the day, they'd swap them. Mm. So he'd hear what Robbie had done and then the other guy would hear. And they'd go away and then they'd work on the album almost concurrently. Yeah. And then bring it together at the end. Yeah, I mean, and the playfulness of that, you can hear on the record. Like, it's just consistently, there's just, it's one of those records where every, every two minutes, you've got, to, oh, I love this bit. You know, it's one of those. Well, I mean, Frontier Psychiatrist almost veers into the novelty. But yeah. It just, it just, they yeah, just so. hold it back. Just yeah. that bit. I mean, and then you've got, of course, like the turntable wizardry of mm. DJ Dexter, who's one of my favorite DJs. He was the first gig I ever went to when I was 15. He was playing in Sandinos in Derry. A shout out to my friends, Una and Paddy and Emma. We went and it was, you know, when you're 15, this is the first time I'd literally ever left the house to go and see something by myself. And I, my mind was absolutely blown. I asked him to play Window Liquor and he did. Wow. <laughs> yes. I had to bring it back. He was also a fan. We were chatting afterwards. But it was that kind of, he was playing, Sandinos is a very flat pub. He wasn't on a stage. He was just there in the, in the pub playing. And it was electric and he played, you know, loads of tracks and offcuts and stuff. And he played the tracks, you know, the records that informed the avalanches as in that were actually used. So you'd have that wonderful feeling of hearing the songs. Oh, that sounds kind of familiar. And then you'd hear the 10 second loop where, oh, that's from Frontier Psychiatrist or that's from, you know, Saving Another Season or, or whatever. Well, for a musical nerd, oh. you know, and I suppose you're your father's son in that regard, that for someone of that bent, I think a record by like Since I Left You by the Avalanches is an absolute treasure trove of ooh, ooh moments they go yeah. I, I, yeah. it is it's like it, it, I recognise uh, that it's the, it's the game of it as mm. well and the, the sheer exuberant joy of feeling like oh that's from this track that's from this track a single track on this is going to have a hundred different samples and that sounds like the most mercenary joyless thing when you say it like that but you can listen to the record and you can never know that you, know, you hear something new every time you, every you single time it. but you can listen to the record and if someone didn't tell you that this was composed of three and a half thousand samples then you just think this is one of the nicest sounding records ever because it's so light and airy and lovely, filled with bangers. And it's remarkably coherent bangers. for something that is kind of Frankensteined from so many separate parts. Yeah. It works and flows beautifully. And I think the clever thing is... It drifts the whole it, way through. It's a mix. There's no breaks between the songs. Yeah. So they've kind of ingeniously... And yeah, and from that, that I think was more of a thing at that, that exact moment when you had these, you had sort of DJ albums and mashup albums which were... You know, you kind of from the very high level of stuff like this, or sort of as heard on Radio Soul Wax one and two, to then stuff that was really kind of cashing, and it was like, okay, we're done with the mashups now. It's fine. <laughs> but this was kind of that first early blast where you're like, oh, jeepers! There's they've discovered a new way of of making art that was just hiding in plain sight. Yeah, yeah. It's like, how about we get all these things together and we make this exploding graffiti sculpture collage of of sounds and it can you know that can sound awful you can imagine what sound you know a bad version of that would sound like it'd be unlistenable but they were like oh no how about we make it like 20 of the best little pop songs that you've ever heard in your life I think they haven't really reached that peak since I think they kind of have you ever seen them I saw them live in one of the early electric picnics and they did their set and then they were taking a break I think because they were tired yeah and they put on Bob Dylan's like a Rolling Stone just to kind of keep us quiet and I'll never forget they were everyone sat, started singing the words to Bob Dylan's like a rolling stone we all thought it was part of the part of the set yeah so we were like oh this is, they're sampling Bob Dylan they all came back out onto the stage and I think one of them was, was crying because he couldn't understand 
the enthusiasm that Ireland had and maybe missing the point entirely of their little break. <laughs> we were singing along to Bob Dylan. No, 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 this is just the intermission. You don't have to. But one of the best gigs I've ever, I was ever at. Well, actually. I will tell you that they also mix Like a Rolling Stone with Holiday by Madonna. Perfect. In a beautiful mm. mix they do called the GI Mix by DJ Dexter. Because that's the thing. It's like they find every, they find every, every strange little corridor of music, you know, and, and they're able to exploit it. Sometimes it can have really profound kind of effects where you're like, geez, that is so much, so much bigger than some of its parts. And sometimes it's just funny and it's just, oh, that is, you know, so outrageous that they would go for those two songs together. And that has its own value also. Well, yeah, some say there's value in everything. Yeah. And I think I admire their philosophy of the lack of, I suppose there's no borders or snobbery. Absolutely. I mean, if there's anyone who hasn't actually heard it, God, I envy you so much that you're going to listen. Don't listen to this first though. Delete what we all said. Go in with clean eyes and clean ears. Did you ever feel while you were writing the book that you were yourself, I suppose, sampling the memories and events from your own childhood and those of your siblings? Yes. And I was sort of overtly doing that with my family members, particularly. We had a WhatsApp group called Best Faced Forward, which if you read the book is an in-joke. But it's, it, it was completely explicit. I would literally say, here, I'm just trying to get this done. Is there, can you tell me like weirdest things daddy ever did on holiday? Or did we once go to Mosney and was I bitten by a dog? Or whatever, <laughs> those kinds of things. So that has been, you know, one of the best experiences of writing the book is like 90% of this stuff was never in the book. It was just really funny chats with my whole family. And I had an excuse. I think this cannot be overstated. I had almost like a cloak that I could put on or like a, a sort of a fedora with a little thing sticking out saying press, which meant that I was able to ask incredibly intrusive questions of my family, which, I mean, they're my family. We were very close. We get on anyway. But I still wouldn't call up my brother Shane at 2 p.m. on a random Tuesday and say, hey, what was it like at Mommy's funeral? That's a conversation that's a very specific conversation. Once everyone knew I was writing the book, I could ask whatever I wanted. And people would start volunteering, now, as you said, experiences they'd had that I could sample. And I don't turn them into my memories, but I talk about them in a more general sense in the book. You know, and I talk about strange little peccadillos. Like my brother was, I love this story so much because I would never have gotten this if I hadn't been, you know, emboldened by the book and writing the book. He said he was driving on the motorway from Derry to Belfast and daddy was really upset with this driver in front of him who was like really, really slow and kind of maneuvering in and out, just a bad driver. Yeah. And my dad not being a, you know, particularly patient driver said, oh, who is this clown? And as they overtook him, it was a man in full clown makeup. <laughs> so like... That is a story that would never, well, I asked my brother about my, about the, about, <laughs> I asked my brother about the funeral. I was five at the funeral, so I, for my mother's funeral. So I didn't really, I don't have any real memories of it. And he said that my sister Darvla cried so much her shoe fell off. And I was like, what's the cause and effect between crying and your shoe coming off? Little, little miracles of language that would happen because he phrased it that way. And I was like, well, I am stealing that. This is more kind of laying down the, the stickiest filaments of the story. Everyone in my family is quite gregarious and chatty and verbose and we all have our stock of stories but it's that same thing that happens I think in all families or in all friend groups you can have a stock memory or a stock sort of thing like one holiday is all took together that every time you end up talking about it you still hear a story you've never heard before mm. and you're like how can that be possible that we're still telling these same old stories for 20 years and then someone pops up with one that you've never heard or that you've forgotten and that would happen every single time we had these chats. So I was like, I'm getting this in writing. And also if you do it in WhatsApp, 
you can like copy and paste it and it's easier. Nice. So, you know, I'm getting a thread out of it. Again, I'm yeah. my father's son. I need yeah. this all. I need it all computerized. Of course. Thank you so much for sharing your recorded history with us today. Some fantastic recollections and insights as I was hoping and expecting. So tell us, listen, what is next? Is there, are the rumors true that there might be a screen adaptation of, have you heard Mammy's? Oh, I'm so sorry. My lawyer has actually just come into the there room. There he is. Um, come in, sit down. Sit uh, down. He's, he's shaking he's his head. And that's right. The gun is actually at my temple. <laughs> just say were in a, an, an alternative <laughs> dimension. Were there to be such a thing with or to there? of an adaptation of the book, mm. would you, how much of a say would you demand to have in the soundtrack? Oh, I think one might have plenty of input. I also think that it, you know, it is one of the things, I mean, we talked with Dairy Girls, I mean, yeah. that they do it so well. I think an awful lot of like Atlanta, for example, and Atlanta a show called High Maintenance, yeah. Yeah. which I really like. And one thing they all have in common is I, I really, whoever is doing the music for them, whoever is booking them is like earning their keep mm. because you know, the shows where you're like, damn, what was that song? And that's lovely. That's great. I mean, I think loads of times I will go back and watch a movie and I'll say, oh, that is the first time I heard that amazing song that I love. And I just thought that I find, you know, by diligently digging in the crates, wasn't, no, you watched one episode of a sitcom. For and it got in there, How ago. I Met Your Mother. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Philip Glass, I'll well, never stop listening yeah. to it. <laughs> I mean, when they, they went really hard on Barely Oz. Uh, oh, they I, did. Yeah. They ruined him for me, <laughs> I have to say. Yeah, I can't listen to him since. Now, as is tradition, Seamus, of these types of podcasts, there's only one, there's only this one, but others have tried to imitate us in previous times. You can only pick one of your records from your recorded history. Which one will it be and why? That is a tough one. I think I'd probably have to go with Homogenic. Oh, I would have, I was, I was going to say, if, I, if it was a betting man, I was going to go Avalanches. See, I also, I kind of went back and forth there. They're very, very tight. I think it's just because at its absolute heights, it does have a sort of level of craft and beauty that the avalanches gets close to but can't quite because you, I think you're dealing with a, a proper, you know, boring old suits, you know, hat on, capital A artist doing something which you can't physically imagine anyone ever doing before. Okay. Uh, you know, I think she's she's on that category of artists for me personally where you're like, oh God, you just want to never try and make art. <laughs> no arguments here. Wonderful <laughs> choice and a wonderful time spent with you, Seamus. You know, thank you so much for taking the time, as we say, to join us for this week's Recorded History. And thank you for sharing your personal side of your record collection. I would dare to think how large and varied it is. Do you have any sense of how many records you have? I, of course you have them catalogued and counted. Oh, I'll have to check the binder when I get home. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. Your dad's ancient Commodore 64 <laughs> computer spreadsheet. Head over to Twitter to follow Mr. Seamus himself at at shockproofbeats. Go on, Seamus. Do it. Anything more threatening than that? No, you've got the accent. You can. <laughs> what do I have to say? <laughs> Just say, follow me on Twitter. Or... Follow me on Twitter or I'll have you professionally killed. There we go. Wow. And there it is. Me chatting with my absolute Twitter and now personal hero, Mr. Seamus O'Reilly. And he proved more than worthy of my worship. What a wonderful, warm, funny and intelligent man he is. Do check out his book. Did you hear Mammy died? And absolutely, follow him on Twitter. Just follow him on Twitter. Get Seamus O'Reilly into your life every day. You will not be sorry. And thanks again to Seamus for taking the time out of his remarkably busy schedule of being one of the best journalists and authors in the world, as well as one of the funniest sods on the planet. Thanks again to you, Seamus. And hopefully you enjoyed our little crate dive together. If you do, and you want to check out any of the records that Seamus mentioned, Avex Twin, Bjork, 
or the avalanches and I 100% recommend you do then we'd love if you supported our partners at therecordhub.com they're just an absolutely outstanding outlet for your record needs and 100 million thousand percent Irish too so that's good we simply couldn't make the podcast without their generosity and all around soundness and if you enjoyed our little crate dive together hopefully you will join me next week and every Sunday after that where we'll be hearing from a delightful mix of homegrown and international talent. We've got actors, writers, broadcasters, comedians, presenters. If they're out there, I'll get them on here and they will be on to discuss their very interesting taste and choices for their recorded history. And I'm here to share those chats with you. And thank you for taking the time And of course, thank you for taking the time to grace me with your gorgeous ears. And if you're still here, can I ask you hit the old subscribe button? Yes, because every time you hit that subscribe button, I am able to go around the corner to the Green Door Bakery here in Stony Batter and buy the best crusty bread in the world. So keep a man in bread and hit that subscribe button on the Go Loud app or wherever you get your podcasts. I've been Ed Smith. This has been Recorded History and you, as ever and always, have been absolutely amazing. Talk to you all next week. Go Loud presents Recorded History. Hosted, produced and researched by me, Ed Smith, at Go Loud Studios. The show was created and executive produced for Go Loud by D-Ready. Our series is proudly supported by TheRecordHub.com your local Irish and online record store.